Thank you all. Thanks for moving up. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Huh? Moving on up to the east side. That's right. So good evening. good evening. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Thank you. Two people said the same. <laughs> the, the thank you guys very much. I love you very much. Yeah, you're, you're with me. We're tracking, right? All right. Uh, over at Real Real, happy Memorial Day weekend. Wow, I heard somebody from, dang, the time warp here. So, got a question for you. What image comes to your mind when you, when you hear the word saint? Don't, you don't have to blurt out, just, just what image comes to your mind? You know, an image that always comes to my mind when I hear the word saint are the little statues that my mother had all over the house that she placed candles in front of and, and that she prayed to. Some of you all might be from the same kind of background I'm from. You know, a saint, she had been taught, was actually a dead Christian who had lived a devout life and therefore had greater access to the throne of God so that his or her prayers on behalf of my mother were more powerful than her own prayers. So if you prayed to a saint and you asked that saint to pray for you, you had a much better chance of having your prayer answered than if you just prayed directly to God yourself. Now, which saint you prayed to depends on what your need is. Seriously. Uh, for example, if you happen to be a beekeeper and you need a blessing upon your bees or maybe even protection from the bees, you'd choose to pray to the saint, the patron saint of beekeepers, who's Saint Ambrosia. Ambrosius, sorry, Saint Ambrosius. If you're heading to Las Vegas, you would choose Saint Cajetan, the patron saint of gamblers. If you party too hard the night before, you might call upon Saint Bibiana, who was the patron saint for those who have hangovers. No, I'm serious. If you have the stomach flu, along with Pepto, of course, you should choose Saint Polycarp, who is the patron saint of, well, you know. <laughs> Don't say it. If you had me as a son, you might ask for help from Saint Genesius, who is the patron saint of clowns. Actually, and this is the honest truth, my mom had a little small statue of St. Jude in our kitchen for everybody to see and had my picture leaned up against the, the little statue of St. Jude. And she would pray for me all the time to St. Jude. It wasn't until I was an adult that I found out what St. Jude was the patron saint of. Does anybody know? The, the patron saint of hopeless causes. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mom. Now, if you like coffee, you may pray to St. Arbucks. Now, this is, this is not real. I'm sorry. Now, believe it or not, there is a St. Dennis who was once the Bishop of France, and, and here he is. Now, I am not liking what I'm seeing there. <laughs> Thank you. I did a little research, and I found out that St. Dennis had his head chopped off for preaching the gospel. I'm really not liking that. But there's more. Legend has it that after his persecutors chopped off his head, his body rose to its feet, grabbed his severed head, and they walked away still preaching the gospel. And that is one bad hombre, yeah? Yeah, just like his namesake. 
And I can just imagine how effective the evangelism was. This guy's walking around with his head. <laughs> Come to Jesus. I'd be listening. So all of that to say that the denomination that I grew up in, now, saints were a big deal. Now, a saint was someone who was innocent of sin, had direct access to the throne of God, his prayers were powerful, and was special in the eyes of God. Now, are saints really that big a deal? Yes, they are. No, we shouldn't make them into statues and we shouldn't pray to them. But yes, saints are a big deal, a very big deal. And we're continuing our series called ID, and that's Discovering the Real You. We looked at this verse in week one, Romans 12, 2. Paul writes this, Do not be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by changing the way you think. Then you will know and experience God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. So what is Paul saying here? How are we transformed? How do we experience God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives? By renewing our what? Renewing our minds. By changing our way of what? Thinking. Especially changing how we think about ourselves. Learning to think about ourselves the way God does. See ourselves the way God sees us. You know, if and when you trusted Jesus Christ to be your Savior, a radical, mind-boggling, life-altering change occurred in your life. Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who belongs to Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. And how much is made new? Everything. You know, if you belong to Christ, you are not the same person that you were before you trusted in him. You may look the same on the outside, but everything about you on the inside has changed. Everything has been is made new. Now, one of the radical changes that took place when you gave your life to Jesus Christ is you were transformed from a sinner into a saint. See, you were a sinner before you met Christ. But you have been made new. I got a question for you. If you are a Christian, are you a sinner who can't help but sin because you're a sinner? Or are you a saint that sometimes sins against your new nature? Which is it? You're a saint. You know, if you see yourself as a sinner, how are you going to act? Like a sinner. I mean, if that is who you are, that is who you are, you got to act like who you are, right? Now, God says that you are a saint. And if God says that you are a saint, what are you? A saint. If the world says that you're a sinner, what are you? A saint. If you feel like a sinner, what are you? A saint. Now, say, say I am a saint. No, not only does God see you as a saint, but he has given you a new nature. In that verse that we read, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says that the old things are passed away. Well, part of those old things that have passed away is your old sin nature is dead. 
You have been made new. You have been given the nature of Jesus Christ himself who lives in you through his Holy Spirit. Now, with one possible exception, Christians are never identified as sinners in the New Testament. Now, that one possible exception is found in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul writes about himself this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But because of the context of this passage, it's possible, it's even likely that what Paul meant when he described himself as the worst of sinners was the fact, what he's talking about was the fact that he had persecuted Christians and even had them put to death before he experienced the grace of God, which made him the least worthy, the biggest sinner to have experienced the mercy and the grace and the love of God. So if you just back up and look at the context in verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And that's why some versions translate it like uh, the contemporary English version. Christ came into the world to save sinners. This saying is true and it can be trusted. I what? I was the worst of sinners. He's talking about who he was before he came, became a Christian. You know, over 60 times in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as saints. Here's one, Ephesians 6.18. Paul writes, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Notice he doesn't say pray to the saints. He says pray for the saints, right? Now look how that's translated in the New Living Translation. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all, what, who? Believers everywhere. So what word is used here for saints? The word believers. So if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you are what? A saint. Well, if every Christian is a saint, if you're a saint, and if I'm a saint, then being a saint must not be a very big deal, right? Wrong. Wrong. True, what a saint is has been misunderstood, but we shouldn't lower our view of saints. We need to raise our view of ourselves and see ourselves as God sees us. Amen? Get it? Good. Now, you remember that definition of a saint that I told you I was taught to believe? A saint is one who is innocent of sin, has direct access to the throne of God, his prayers are powerful, and is special in God's eyes. Who does that describe? You. You. So let's talk about just some of what it means to be a saint. Number one, as a saint, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Now, the word saint comes from a root word in the Greek that describes something that may have been dirty, like a cup or a, a dish or something, but it's been washed, and it's been made clean so that it is fit to be used for the purpose that it was made for. 
Something maybe like this. Uh, although this was made for drinking out of, it is no longer fit for that. It's no longer useful for the purpose for which it was made because it is dirty. It is filthy. But when it is washed, give me some time to get my prop out. I need a prop man. Anybody want to volunteer to be my prop man next week? But when it's washed, then it is once again fit for the purpose for which it was made. So I guess you could say that this glass, this glass, when washed, has been sainted. Get it? Good. And when you became a Christian, you were sainted. You were washed. You were made clean. You were forgiven so that you can fulfill the purpose that God made you and saved you for. You know, I'm a, the youngest of four boys. And the pecking order looked like this. My oldest brother, Lou, was 11 years older than me. Then there was Dick, who was six years older. And then there was Mick, who was three years older. And there was me. Now, I know what you're thinking about. Dick, Mick, and Dennis. Would it help to know that uh, my father wanted to name me Slick, but my mother vetoed it? <laughs> Go for it, baby. You know, we, we lived in a three-bedroom home. Of course, my parents got their own room. My oldest brother got his own room, which meant the rest of us, the three of the rest of us had to share a room. And my brother, Dickie, that was six years older, he got his own twin bed. And then my brother and I had to share. That was three years older. My brother, Mickey, and I had to share a twin bed. That was up until I was 18 years old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was really up until close to, I'd say, eight years old. And so uh, we loved each other, but we also fought like cats and dogs. And my mom would not tolerate that. Matter of fact, she had a rule that if we had been fighting, that before we could eat dinner, we would have to apologize to each other, forgive each other, say I love you, and hug each other. Which we did with the least amount of sincerity, but we did it because we wanted mom's dinner. Now the minute we were finished eating and left the table, you can imagine it was round two when we were out of the sight of my mother, which is why also before we went to sleep, before bedtime, she would make us basically do the same thing. If, we had, if she caught us fighting again, she made us say, I'm sorry, forgive each other, say I love you, and hug each other. But you know, there's no way I can count the number of times that after being forgiven by my brother, the moment my mom would turn out the lights and close the door, she would hear me yell out, Mom! Mickey keeps kicking me! Mom, Mickey keeps pinching me. Mom, Mickey gave me a wedgie. I am so glad God's forgiveness doesn't look like that, aren't you? Look at how God's word describes that you're forgiven. Psalm 103. Let's read this out loud together. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? 
How far is the east from the west? It's an infinite distance, right? It's a never-ending distance. God has thrown your sins away, and they are still moving away from you. And, and then Isaiah 53, 43, 25 says this. God says, I, even I, am the one who blots out, cancels your transgressions. For my own sake, I will what? Not remember your sins. With his last breath, while he was hanging on the cross, Jesus shouted a word. He shouted the word to telestai, which means it is finished. What is finished? The debt that you and I owed for our sins, the punishment that we deserved was paid in full by Christ's death on the cross. Now, a question for you. How many sins had you committed when Christ died for your sins? Zero, right? All of your sins were future. Well, unless you're 2,000 years old. Christ died for and provided for the forgiveness of your sins when you had not yet committed a single sin. Which not only then, your forgiveness includes not only the sins of your past, but also the sins of your future. All of your sins have been forgiven already if you belong to God, if you're his child. You're forgiven. You're washed. All of your sins. Which means that if and when you blow it, when you sin, you don't have to wonder whether God will forgive you. You already have. It's already been provided for. You don't have to beg. You don't have to cry. You don't have to plead. You don't have to punish yourself by carrying guilt and shame and by not forgiving yourself. See, Christ took all of that upon himself. Why would you want to carry that too? When we do, it's actually diminishing what Christ did for us on the cross. What we do is with humility and gratitude and joy, we receive the forgiveness that already belongs to us as children of God. And we allow ourselves to be changed by that forgiveness and grace. The question always comes up, well, won't being forgiven so easily cause us to just go out and sin more? Don't we need to be punished don't we need to be intimidated into obedience now and then? Well, first of all, you weren't forgiven easily. Just look at the cross and see how much your forgiveness and my forgiveness cost. But does God use fear and punishment to control our behavior? Look at what John writes in 1 John 4.18. He says, we have no fear of someone, speaking of God, who loves us perfectly. His perfect love for us eliminates all dread of what he might do to us. If we are afraid, it is for fear of what he might do to us and shows that we are not fully convinced that God really loves us. You know, if punishment for sin could change a heart, then every person who came out of prison would be an angel. 
the law and punishment can control behavior for a short time and society can't function without law and consequences and, and punishment. But only the grace, love, and the Spirit of God can change a person's heart. You know, forgiveness is not something to be taken advantage of and a reason to sin, just the opposite. Forgiveness is something to be thankful for and is the reason not to sin. To walk in obedience with a God that showers us with an endless supply of his love, grace, and forgiveness. So say this out loud with me. I am a saint. I am forgiven. Number two, as a saint, I am righteous. The word saint also means to be holy, to be righteous. It's translated holy ones in several versions. Now, being holy and righteous is, is way more than being forgiven. Righteousness is being viewed by God and having a standing with God like I have never sinned at all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in him. Now look at how that's worded. It doesn't say that we are given righteousness. It says that we become righteousness. The righteousness of God in Christ we become the righteousness of Christ. That is a mind-blowing statement. Now, you don't need to raise your hands, but do you remember a movie that came out years ago with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy called Trading Places? Now, I would only recommend the edited-for-television version of it, okay? But in it, Aykroyd is this rich, powerful, influential businessman, and Eddie Murphy is a homeless con man. And their roles are suddenly switched. And everything that Eddie Murphy was, Dan Aykroyd becomes. So Dan Aykroyd becomes homeless and broke. And everything that Aykroyd was, Murphy becomes rich and influential. And that's something like, and I'm a small something, but it's something like what happened to each of us and Christ. We traded places with him. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross, when we place our trust in him, he becomes like us, we become like him. He becomes our sin, we become his righteousness. On the cross, Christ, desert, Christ received everything that we deserved, so that we might receive everything he deserves. Let me say that again so it sinks in. Listen, you are so identified with Christ that he received everything you deserved on the cross so that you might receive everything that he deserves. Wow. No, we did nothing at all to deserve that. There's nothing that you have to do to keep it. There's nothing that you can do to lose that position of being righteous. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Ephesians 2, 8 says this, that you were saved, you were made righteous by faith in God who treats us much better than we deserve. This is God's gift to you and not anything you have done on your own. We've said this before, that you are so identified with Christ that when God looks at you, he sees you as being as righteous as his son Jesus. So say this after me. I am a saint. I am righteous. Does that feel funny to say? So let's say it again, because that's what the scripture says. And if God says that you're righteous, what are you? If the world says you're unrighteous, what are you? If you feel unrighteous, what are you? Because who says you're righteous? God. So who are you going to believe? Number three, as a saint, you are especially valued by God. You're God's own special treasure. Philippians 4, 21 says this. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Hey, there's a command there, right? Right? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to greet the people around you and introduce yourself as saint, whatever your name is. Go for it. Come on. Come on. Let's get into this. Let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. St. Jesse James. All right. Once again, I'm going to ask you, did that feel weird? If God says you're a saint, what are you? If you don't feel like a saint, what are you? Saint. Now, the literal meaning, the actual literal, most literal meaning of the word saint is to be set apart. To be set apart. And it describes something that is so special, that is so valuable to someone that it is set apart from everything else as that person's own personal treasure. Of course, in this case, this someone is God. And his saints are those who are so valued, so precious to him that he has set us apart from everything else in the universe to make us his own special treasure. Do you understand that you are the most valuable thing in the whole universe to God? More valuable than the stars and the planets and the galaxies and the supernovas and whatever. You are more valuable than all of it. Because for what else did Jesus die? Just you. You know, I was kind of spoiled as a child. I know you probably couldn't guess that. And I had lots of toys. But I had one particular toy that was my favorite. It was this little stuffed dog that looked like a Scottish terrier, so I called him Scotty. And man, I carried that dog with me everywhere I went, played with it. I mean, I had it for so long, I... Love the fur and the right eye off of that dog. <laughs> I was pretty good at sharing my other toys with my friends, but nobody touched Scotty, man. 
He was mine and mine only. And because I set him apart for just me, he could have been rightly named St. Scotty. You know, God has set you apart from everything else in the universe and all of creation. He set you apart for himself. And unlike Scotty, who was thrown away by my mom, which was very traumatic for me, nothing can change your value to God. Even if you get all your fur and one eye loved off. By the way, I noticed that some of you have had the fur loved off. The church at Corinth was a mess. It was rife with division, spiritual pride, competition, envy, selfishness. People were misusing spiritual gifts for their own sake, for their, for their own uh, benefit, to gain strokes, to, to stroke their ego. Members of the church were involved in gross immorality. They turned, even turned the communion services into an orgy of food and alcohol. You know, if I was Paul, writing on behalf of God, I think I would start and end my letter to them with a tongue lashing. Warning them that if they didn't straighten up, the judgment of God was coming on them. Straighten up, sinners, is what I'd say. You know, it would be especially true in my early years of ministry when I, I really didn't know much about grace. Matter of fact, I thought that the reason that people didn't live for God is they didn't feel badly enough about their sin. And so I definitely wanted to remind them. I, I thought that guilt and shame were the way that you change a person's behavior and change a person's heart. And I found out that that's not true. And preaching like that will eventually turn people away from God. And it's not biblical. So how does Paul open and close his letter to this church which is just running amok with sin. 1 Corinthians 1-2 We are sending this letter to you members of God's church in Corinth you bunch of sinners, right? No. You have been made what? Because you belong to who? God has chosen you to be his what? Saints. He has done the same for all those everywhere who pray to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is their Lord and ours. And look how he ends the letter. May the love and favor of the Lord Jesus Christ rest upon you. My love to all of you, for we all belong to Christ Jesus. Now, to be sure, he did have some words of correction for them in this letter. But the first thing and the last thing that he wanted them to hear was despite their crummy behavior, they were still saints. They still belonged to God. And they were loved and favored by him. Just as they were. I want you to know that God cares very much about your behavior. <laughs> he cares very much about your actions and how you live. He cares very much that you seek to live the life that he desires for you because he loves you, and that's the best. He wants the best for you. But understand this. 
He loves and values you apart from anything that you do or don't do. Repeat after me. I am a saint. I am God's own treasure. Well, let me close with a story. Well, those older brothers that I described were all great athletes and football players. And I had to follow in their footsteps. When I was a freshman in high school, I played wide receiver, believe it or not. If you don't know what that is, that meant I was supposed to catch passes and score touchdowns. At the time, as a freshman in high school, and by the time I was in the season, I was about 5'6", five, 5'8", five, weighed all of about 125 pounds. So one day at practice, I'm going across the middle of the field, and the ball arrives in my hands from the quarterback at the same time that our huge middle linebacker arrived to greet me. He was at least four inches taller than me and outweighed me by 50 pounds. And so, guess what happened? He knocked the ball out of my hands, and I thought he had knocked me blind. Because he hit me so hard, he turned my helmet sideways. When I get back to the huddle, I thought I might get sympathy from the coach because he saw how hard I got hit. Instead, he said, you dropped that pass, boy? And I said, yes, sir. I thought you were a football player. I thought your name was Diaz. Live up to your name, son. You have the blood of your brothers flowing through your veins. (laughs) Now, there was not much grace in that. It was tough to hear. But he was challenging me to reach the potential that he saw in me as a football player because of the name that I had. And I took it to heart. And I played to live up to my name from that day forward. And I never again dropped a pass. Did I mention I never again was thrown a pass? (laughs) And that's beside the point. You are so identified with Jesus. You are so one with Jesus that his spiritual blood flows through your veins. You have a special identity, and you have a special name. A name given to you by God himself. You are a saint. Say, I am a saint. Say it again. Close your eyes and let that sink in. Say it again. I am a saint. Say it. I am a saint. Believe it and live up to your name. Let's pray. Again, I, I, I know that probably many of you just are, are continuing to carry guilt and shame and thinking that you're stuck. You see yourself as a sinner. You see yourself almost as helpless against temptations and struggles with addictions and things like unforgiveness. 
You're a saint. You've been forgiven. And you are righteous. You've been given a new nature. Jesus Christ himself lives in you. Say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Just take some time again to just let it sink in and give thanks for the fact that you are a saint. Not a sinner, a saint.